0: This is Christy Kemper, news director for QFM 96. Uh, I was news director on uh, December the 8th, uh, 2004, and currently still am news director here at QFM, have been for 28 years. I live in Grove City, so it it only took me like 10, 15 minutes to get to work. And you're right, I always listen to the AM news talk station in town because we used to actually be together at one point. Right, right. And so that way I just kind of get the feel for, hey, what, what get the headlines, get the headlines. What happened overnight? And it's 5 a.m. and I'm driving in. And John Remy, who was news director for TVN at the time, I heard him come on five o'clock report. Top story was so many dead Al Rosa shooting last night. And I'm like, what? So get in and I sit down in the newsroom, which was separate from the news booth. So I had uh, two banks of phones. And I start to try to get as much information as I could. Now, understand, this is 2004, so this was, you know, cell phones and and that kind of stuff still wasn't at the height of just what the people start of the internet. Out. Yeah, yeah. just started the internet, anything like mm-hmm. that. So to get any kind of information like we do now was almost unheard of back right. in 04. So in the minute I got there, the phone had been ringing. In fact, there was a light that showed that I still had I had messages. So I answered the phone, and the first phone call was so and so from the BBC. So I'm getting calls from Europe, not just across the country, but definitely overseas where they had just heard about it. And, of course, they looked up and said, well, it's in Columbus, classic rock station. And we were the first one that they called. So I got a call from the BBC. I remember I got a call from Ireland. I got a call from Spain. I got a call from the Netherlands and fielding all these calls. And I didn't have the information either.
1: That's what I was going to ask. What do you 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 just walk in? You heard the headline on, on the way in. What information do you have to share? They wanted to point. know
0: how big the club was, where the club was, how long they played. And I told them, I said, I had just walked in myself. I said, I don't have the information. And a couple of them did call back once I got more. And then it was, can you do a quick report for us? So I had to write stuff down and make an actual report that I read to three different news agencies uh, in Europe in order to do that. Wow. And even then, we still didn't know right. a lot. We didn't know the lengths of... For the people that were there and what they dealt with and how many shots were fired and, and who's the shooter and then trying to get information, I, the whole thing was just, it was just so weird that it, it happened in our town, in our iconic club. I don't know anybody who has been in Columbus any amount of time that hasn't seen at least one show at El Rosa. And also understand, this was what, just over three years after 9-11? We're already on edge as, as a society about what can happen. What can happen when we let our guard down? And after this the Al Rosa shooting, I kept thinking, now the concert experience has sure. completely totally been tainted changed. for it's everybody. Sure. But for that to happen, he, it'll never happen here. Oh, that, that stuff happens to, to other people. You know, all these shootings, yeah, no. And then when it happened here, like we're not safe from anything. Nothing. And I think about that every time to this day when I walk in a club.
2: This is vinyl analysis. I'm your host, Arch Madness, and with me producer Greg Hansberry. It was a night rock fans will always remember. And for some, it's a night they want to forget and can't. Pantera, Dimebag, and the Al Rosa Villa A Fan's Journey. Episode 4,
1: December 8th, 2004. All right, Archie, uh, we might as well get right to it.
2: Where were you when you heard? So that Thursday morning, I'm, I'm coming into work. I was a, I was a sports director the sports guy, if you will, on a morning show, the Wags and Elliott morning show here in Columbus, Ohio. So on my ride in to work, um, I'm not listening to music. I'm not listening to the news. I'm listening to sports. I'm trying to figure out what happened the night before in sports. So I was oblivious to what had taken place a few hours before uh, on that Wednesday evening at the Al Rosa Villa. I get into work and I noticed... Uh, our news person Christy Kemper who we, we just heard from yeah I she had her door closed usually at this time it's still kind of open but I know if her studio door was closed and she seems occupied a lot of times that's when something's happening whether it's um, school closings if we have a big snowstorm or something I know something's up so she sure. I could tell she was very preoccupied with whatever was happening. Then I kind of go into to the main studio there, and the first guy I always see is Dan, or the producer, and I remember he just had this look on on his face, like, "Man, I got I got to tell you something, man." And, and just, I know it, Dan, as close as Dan and I were, I know Dan was the one that wanted to tell me that what was what was happening. So Dan, I I, I remember it. Dan just said, "Hey, man, uh, there was there was a shooting last night at the Rosa Villa." some people were killed and 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 Dimebag was was one of one of those this guy jumped on stage and and, and shot Dimebag
1: and so i mean I what, what do you i mean i was what do you think?
2: I, I was just i I was it was so then i run in to to my uh, little production studio that where i you know i i hop on my on my computer i'm pulling the sports stories and stuff and uh, but at that point it wasn't even i wasn't even focused on sports i was trying to get the answers um I even tried to call a few of my friends who I thought may have been
1: there. No one, not nobody. Do you, know, do you know the names of the other victims? Even at this point, I, no, because no, because th- 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 with your history there, there's a good chance you might. That even I knew know somebody, yeah, somebody. and
2: uh, and and that's the thing. I, I was trying to, I was treading lightly as as far as because I knew Christy. She just our news girl. I knew she had. She was frantic there and trying to figure out how she was going to get it. And we, and we found out. I mean, she was getting calls from all around the world and stuff. So I was just trying to, to get info from her, because even at that time, I mean, they were just kind of piecing the story together as far as numbers and people that were shot, people that were still in the hospital. And uh, and I, I do remember looking through and I was trying to figure out the names that I knew. And it was there was nobody in that group that I knew um You know, I saw some of the pictures in the in the in the papers and stuff of the victims and and stuff like that and stuff like that, that uh, some of the news stories that Christie was getting. I was like, man, a few of those names sound familiar, familiar, but that's nobody. You know, it was it was nobody I I knew. And, And but then the whole the selfish rock fan part of me was just trying to figure out. Why, you know, this happened, obviously, this was directed even at that point, I was like, this was. Somebody was coming after after dime after dime, and 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 I remember thinking, I wonder if if Vinny was one of these people. I mean, it was just we we're trying to piece stuff together. I mean, it's you got to remember, chaos. you don't I know mean, what's going on. And, and Greg, you work on a morning show now. You know how early you're there, man. Right. You know how early you're there, and 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 even if something happened overnight and things were a little slower, it was a little slower of a drip back in, in you know 15 years ago than it is now. It's a little more a little more ready to get these answers and stuff, and stuff is gets to us a little quicker, but. I was just trying to piece together exactly, you know, if somebody else in the band was hurt and it was, it was just horrible, man. And something else that was in my mind as I'm, I'm trying to piece this together is, I mean, I had a ticket, man. I mean, I had you a ticket. Were, you were going to go to the show. I, I had a ticket and, and once again, you know, morning show guy to morning show guy there. I mean, it's. You make choices through the week. If this is a weekend show, I'm there, man. Sure, sure. This is a weekend show, I'm there. And back in the day when I wasn't doing mornings, I would have been there. I would have been there on a Wednesday night, but I had my ticket and... Um, you were
1: being a responsible Archie for a Yeah, once, I mean, know? I
2: was, you know, I, I, was, I was curious to see how how this played out with, with, with Diamond Vinny's band and, and if it was something that would, would translate live. You, you know, I would have... I had it in my head that there was a chance I could go, but I it just, with work, you know... The thing is, when they paper some of these shows, and by paper, I mean when they just pass out these tickets, you know, I would go to our promotions guy and say, hey man, if this show's coming up, this show's coming up, and I would get some tickets, and whether I went or not, you know, some I went to and some I didn't, and uh, and that that was another thing. Like I said, man, I was just, once I kind of wrapped my mind around it, I was just trying to figure out my friends who were into that music who would have been there, you you know, Um, and... I like I said, I've I've met people who have been there, but I, I didn't know anybody personally. And I just and then as a rock fan, as a as a person who loves to go to, to, to concerts and stuff, and and I just can't I can't imagine what those people went through. And and it's you go to these shows to have fun and, and get away from this type of shit. And it always seemed like a safe a safe space to go to a, to a rock show. Especially the Alrosa. And that was another thing, man, that hit me. I mean, even more so than than all the other stuff. It's like, how how, how there? Why there? How, how could this happen at the Alrosa Villa, a place I'd been to hundreds of times and, and and just seen all my heroes and and met a ton of my heroes in the parking lot or afterwards at the meet and greets when they'd set up the tables and, you know, and watching my buddies shoot pool with Sebastian Bach, I mean it was all just flashing back to me all the great times and and how good Rick Catella had been to me over the years and how he let me be a part of so, so many, many things, there, levels.
1: Man. So many levels of this thing is 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 running through your head and but, affecting but you. But more
2: than anything, it was just the people at the show. It was just those those people that were there because we've all been to shows, man, like that and on a on a cold Wednesday night and you know, it's, and and I'm sure there were people that had to go to work that next day, but they went ahead and sacrificed and 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 went to the show because they wanted to see Diamond Vinny's new band and just still, man,
1: 15 years later, and it just it still absolutely breaks your heart. Well, we told you that Rick Soga was going to be woven through a lot of these uh, episodes here. Hear his firsthand account of that night. <laughs> It's, a, it's an odd story because
3: I was on my way to that show, but I had, I was the band that I'm in now, Shuck and Bubba, had rehearsal. And after rehearsal, I was heading that, that way. Um, I was going to go see that show with one of my buddies. And uh, so I get a call from my friend who's a sheriff. He's a sheriff for Columbus. And uh, I get all these calls while I'm practicing. Right. And I check my messages. He said, Tell me you're anywhere but not at the Alrosa right now. Tell me me anywhere in the world, but in the Alrosa. He said, I'm on my way there. They've every available car is on their way to the Alrosa. There's been a shooting there. I knew about it in the time that he was getting the call about a shooting at the Alrosa. Oh, wow. So, so he there. was calling me going, oh my God, please don't he be was there. looking out
2: for his friend. Yeah. Even as and, he was uh, rushing there.
3: Of course, I called him back. He doesn't answer nothing. Yeah. And so I drove straight over there. I just drove right over. As soon as he said that, I, I, I drove over there. And at that point, the police had already barricaded things off. And it was, it was had, things had already, you know, had taken place. And they weren't letting anybody in there. But through him, I kind of knew what was going on. Um, what was your take? So you you pull up.
2: I mean, you know, it's uh, do, we, we usually if it filled up, we had to park across the street. Yeah, yeah. right. The UPS. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah,
3: Depot, so, yeah. so where where did you park? Kind of set it up for. So I pulled over uh, where the hotels are, like where they, the Motel Six are. I got that far. Right. They, that's as far as they'd let you go. They they literally put a they horse uh, put the wooden horse up to stop everybody from going in there. And um, so I. I called him I kept calling him and he finally called me back and then he told me what what had happened. Right. I just couldn't believe I just couldn't believe my Yeah. Because it was like it was a week night. It, yeah. it was it was a it was a weekday night as I remember it. And I just was like wonder what the, how many people were there and El Rosa wasn't really known for being open on, you know, a Thursday night or Wednesday night cuz it you know it, it I didn't know. I was just so and I was looking for all these different ways of getting over there to see what was going on but I it was just such a shock to me. What was the scene like when when you
2: got there? Were you? I mean, obviously your your friend, the sheriff, uh, there, yeah. deputy, he he told you exactly what was going on. But were you like reading stuff with with people there as far as what was yeah, what was so, happening? I mean, were, what were people talking about?
3: So what what I did was is I went I ended up going over to I I went through and I went over to Slapsy Maxie's because that's where people were when they were leaving. I was like you know kind of just asking people where they were going you know right. when they were. Driving. And so people were starting to go to Slapsy Maxie. So I went over there and I started getting, everybody started telling me what was going on. And it was like, I was starting to get the inside information of what was happening. And at that point, I believe CNN or Fox news had picked up on the story and had gotten out. And uh, I got a phone call from my buddy, Scott, who was with Brett Michaels from poison. And they called me and said, can you please tell us what's going on over there? And I go, and I told him, like I'm right here. Like I, you're calling me right now. I'm right here. So I ended up talking to uh, Brett and my friend Scott and telling him, you know, hey, this is what's going on. You and told
2: Brett Michaels yeah. what was happening, and they knew
3: what would the story. I mean, they knew that bar. I mean, well, Brett yeah, knows man. that bar. Yeah, Brett played sure. that bar absolutely. So it was it was surreal to be talking to uh, my friend Scott and Brett about this whole thing happening and still not really knowing. I mean, knew, I knew what the end result was, but I didn't know really what happened. I didn't know. Doesn't it? It still is
2: that it happened there. And look, it uh, can happen anywhere. And we, we know yeah. now from, you know, yeah. 15 years later, we, we know the stories and we hear these stories and they're a more regular occurrence, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that it happened there, man. It, of it,
3: all it, places. Yeah. I mean, because the Alrosa to me, I mean, it was, it's, it's a family. That's a family, uh, yes. uh organization, his business. parents name, everybody is family in there. Like when I'd get paid at the end of the night, I would see, you know, Al would be over there smoking a cigar and be hanging out while they're counting money saying, you know, you owe this much for this, you owe this much, yeah. you know, and I just remember just being there and just seeing everybody from, you know, grandpa, grandma, all the way down to, you know, like, to Tara, Catella being there, you know, um, Johnny, all of them, they were just all such a sweet family, and then you hear something like that happens, and you just I, I guess, you know when you hear about these shootings in these other places you don't have a, you don't have anything to kind of hang your hat on, to to understand it now, we kind of did this is what brought it back, brought it home to us, to where you understand like this, this terror, terrorist type things can happen anywhere
2: the book a vulgar display of power, courage and carnage at the Alrosa Villa. The author, Chris A. His book details the events that happened that night like no other book or document about this event. The reason I wanted to talk to him, he goes into great detail about the victims and who they were as people. Not just Dimebag, but these other three guys and the sacrifices these heroes made that fateful night hi
4: I'm Chris a I'm an author and a writer the author of the book a vulgar display of power courage and carnage at the Almus of Guy dying got killed but like three other guys got killed and some other dudes got shot but of course you know everybody is focused on the rock star guy and everybody else kind of fades into the into the background and the news cycle is so fast and and so inattentive that, you know, within three weeks, Dimebag's murder and the murder of these other people. But I wanted to know, well, who were who these frickin' three guys who got killed? And, you know, were they were they just standing in the frickin' crowd? And they got, you know, actually, or or I was hearing that these people had injected themselves into the situation. And had done some really cool stuff. And that's what kind of got me going was, you know, now that is a cool way to tell a story that has an unhappy ending is to try to see, you know, see it from the perspective everybody's looking at dying bag and I get that, but I wanted to showcase these three other guys—Aaron Hawk, Nathan Bray, and Jeffrey Thompson—because just because I thought, and then the more I learned about these guys and the the events that unfolded that night and the way they reacted to them in their own individual ways—and you know, really, I mean, really doing some crazy brave stuff—and you know, what's really important is that. These guys were very aware of the danger they were facing. I mean, it wasn't like they just made it—you know—you uh, know—a spur of the moment decision. They had a, the opportunity to process. You know, it's a bad guy. He's got a freaking gun. You know, I got to be careful. But they still made the decision to do something that put them in harm's way, and they—you know—they—they they paid for it.
2: Jeffrey Thompson. Now he was a part of the uh, damage plan. Also the, the Pantera crew, right?
4: Yeah. Jeff was, Jeff was a guy who, um, who really enjoyed being in the music business and he was kind of a born entertainer and uh, he was a really big guy. Um, So he got stuck in the security role a lot, but Jeff's ambitions were a lot bigger than that. He was, He was a guy who was looking at actually managing bands and and going beyond just being the security guy. And by all accounts, Jeff was a guy who... I I worked in the music business as a photographer for quite a few years, and I crossed paths with a lot of security people for bands. And a lot of them are just mean people. They're just not nice folks at all. But Thompson was a guy who... Was laid back. He could defuse situations. He tried to avoid confrontation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he was a big, menacing looking guy who seemed to have a pretty big heart. And everybody in him thought he was just, just awesome. And, uh, yeah, he, he, uh, on the, on the night he was murdered, he, uh, he, he jumped right into the fray and, uh, um, I, I give him a tremendous, I give him the credit for saving Vinnie Paul's life, quite frankly. Because while he, um Jeff Thompson literally jumped on, on the, the killer's back. And the guy was big enough that he was able to literally, holding his Beretta in his right hand, literally reach over his shoulder. With the gun and crank a round off into Jeff Thompson's, you know, upper shoulder region, which you know, caused Jeff to to release him. And when he did, he turned around, and the bad guy also turned around and fired another round into Jeff, and shot him in the back, and and, uh, and killed him.
2: Yeah, so, that's uh, that's a very scary moment there. Well, it's, it, the, the whole thing is scary, but I, the uh, that moment where uh, Vinny is is being covered by. Um, by Dimes, Dimes Roadie, and and they're that he's watching, he's watching Nathan Gale, and, it, and all of a sudden his his attention goes somewhere else, and that's how right is, and then Vinny was able to to escape around the, the the drum riser and then get over onto the other side of the of the Al Rosa Villa.
4: Yeah, that sounds that sounds pretty accurate to me. You know, it's honestly it's been oh man, many many years since I turned the pages in that book. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's, it's not just, I mean, not just the guys who, who lose their lives in this, who do a lot of remarkable things. It's also, I mean, I give in this day and age where so many people are, you know, they give the cops a hard time. They're disrespectful. They don't want to talk to them. They don't want to get involved. That night, the cops had busloads of people who stuck around to give statements to the cops who cooperated. And the and the cops in Columbus, the detectives who worked this case, told me straight up, we you know that just never happened to him. I mean, just just doesn't happen. But everybody who could help in any way, shape, or form, you know. Whether it's a tribute to Dimebag or just the quality of the people who were there that night, I don't care, it doesn't really matter, but they just did something that I just thought was really, you know, very important and really good, and they stuck around and, you know, tried to help out, and it really did pay off.
2: Aaron Hulk, he was a part of the Alrosa security team, right?
4: That is correct. He had. Uh, he was also another guy who was kind of a career rock and roll Guy, he he liked to work security in venues. Um, He he had an amazing collection of uh, backstage passes and and uh, uh, working passes and you know silks for working with various artists and a a million venues. And he was known all over Columbus. Mm -hmm. And yeah, he was working uh, uh, at the back door of the Alrosa in a security. uh, you know, position back there, you know, making sure folks were staying, uh, you know, away from the uh, the stage and, you know, making sure no one's sneaking in the back door doing all that stuff. And I think it's really important. you got to put it all in context, too, okay? Tickets for that show were $8, okay? Eight bucks to go see Damage Plan with Dimebag Daryl and Benny Paul. And the barrier for the show literally cost more than the band was paid that night. So it it wasn't a gigantic crazed packed show. It was about half the house. 350 people or so. So this is a pretty intimate affair. But Aaron Hawk is, you know, he's one of the guys working security there. And you've, you guys have been to the Alrosa. Yeah, things can happen so quickly.
2: Nathan Bray, I mean, this is this was just this is a fan. I mean, he was there to see Dimebag. Let's I mean, and 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 got up in in front of him and and just wanted to to see his hero.
4: Yeah, that's. I mean, that's that's pretty much it in a nutshell. He he'd been a dime fan for a a really really long time, and you know for some reason I remember. Uh, uh, you know, talking to his, uh, his wife, his, and she telling me how he had told her on the phone before the show that somehow he just knew he was going to meet Dimebag that night, which of course is, you know, a sad, sad fact in an unhappy way. But yeah, you know, guy who's at the show, he's about three rows back. And you know the the guy runs on stage, and the shooting happens, and before you know it, you know Nathan Bray is on stage, and he's you know he's he's trying to get over to Dimebag to to give the guy CPR. Um, you know he's you know it's it's probably more of an instinctive thing than anything, and I'm sure there are other folks there who who wish they had done the same or, you know, were just weren't in a position to provide aid. But the fact is this guy went up there and tried and he he was, he was relieved by a guy who uh, I think was, if I remember correctly, was uh, like an EMT or something. And, and he moved on to Jeff Thompson. So uh, again, Nate has a real special place uh, in, in my heart. It's just, you know, just a regular guy who, you know, he didn't have to go up there, but he did. Something compelled him to do it. You know, and that's the same thing with, with, with Aaron Hawk. I mean, the guy's getting paid, you know, pins to stand by a back door, but, you know, he was an ex-Marine, and, you know, he saw this guy with a gun shooting people, and he figured, you know, I got I got a chance to get this guy. And when he thought this guy was going to reload, that's when Aaron, you know, tried to get to him. And, unfortunately, this individual, Dale, was prepared was able to quickly reload and and get off five rounds very quickly and very accurate
2: what kind of a time um, frame are we talking here, Chris? I mean, I think you said it's i mean it's it was under five minutes it was like four fifty nine or something like the whole everything
4: yeah from from the time that he gets onto the stage until Nimeyeyer shoots him is I think it's just under five minutes and it's, uh, um, it's really interesting because there are periods where it, it's, there's like a lull in the action. I mean, like there's totally a minute where just nothing's going on. There's people kind of, you know, behind cover shouting to each other, but there isn't a whole lot of, you know, interaction going on. um and it's it's quite fascinating footage to watch but quite frankly I've seen my fill of it and I'm not really that interested in seeing it again
2: <laughs> right
4: um but um and it's it's a it's a crazy 5 minutes and um what's really remarkable is some of the some of the people in the crowd, just the reactions, where you have people who are literally standing next to the barrier. I mean, absolutely in harm's way, but they're just transfixed. I don't know if they really realized, you know, how much danger they really were in. And uh, um, you know, then just the you know people who try to to dialogue with uh, with Gail, you know, trying to tell him to keep it cool. You know, and you. Know, and just relax things like that it was uh, there was a lot there's a lot of stuff going on and unfortunately a book like mine I just I could have made that a thousand pages man
2: the man who put an end to this horrible scene the man who stopped the killer Columbus police officer James Nigemeyer. here at the station I work at in Columbus QFM 96 we have a yearly radio phone for our Red, White, and Q fund. We raise money for first responders, veterans, and active military. And I asked Officer Nigemeyer to come on and join me during the Radio Fund. I had heard that he suffered from PTSD, post traumatic stress disorder. So many heroes that we try to help with the Red, White, and Q fund suffer from it. It's debilitating. I told Officer Nigemeyer I didn't want to talk about his experience on December 8th, I wanted to talk about December 9th to where he is now and his struggle with PTSD. He was gracious enough to let us share some of that interview on this podcast.
5: My name is James Negemeyer. Yeah, retired Columbus police officer. The flashbacks just constantly, you just constantly relive that in your head. I, I can't even explain it any other way. If you've been in the middle of any kind of traumatic situation, car wreck or seen anything traumatic, you just keep reliving it. What could I have done different? You know, the constant questions in your head. Um And then the uh, PTSD um, is something that just you don't have control over. Um, in my case, it started with panic attacks. Um, you felt like you were having a heart attack, heart racing, sweating, hands going numb, face going numb, um, couldn't breathe, couldn't walk. Um, was actually rushed to the emergency room, thought I was having a heart attack, ended up being a massive anxiety attack. Medicated for that, back to the hospital again the next day for another massive anxiety attack. So that part of it takes over your body. Yeah, I don't care how tough you are; you don't have any control over your mind. Um, that was the onset of my PTSD. Was the was the massive anxiety attacks? That's where it started, and then the nightmares. Well, you know, I didn't sleep the first thirty-six hours. Probably, you know, that happened. It. Ten fifteen, roughly in the evening. By the time I got home, it was probably three or four in the morning. And um, I didn't sleep that whole day until the next day. So, um, you know, first time you go to sleep, then you wake up in a cold sweat, nightmares. Um, it starts pretty quick and it, it's pretty sudden. How has it gone the last 15 years? I mean, is it, where are you now? That went on with the massive anxiety attacks. It's 17 days in a row. I went through that um it was the worst 17 days of my life you you can't imagine unless you've had one um and you can't control it you can't keep it from happening and then once it happens it's hard to stop it from happening um so I was put on medication pretty quickly for anxiety attacks which did help a lot Mm, I had to stay on that medication see psychiatrist for the mental health nothing that I had done wrong uh, you know, it's a different mental health than people think of mental health. This is uh, a post-traumatic mental health as opposed to, you know, uh, schizophrenia, mental health, or some right. of the other right. diag- diagnosed mental health. So different mental health. When people hear the word mental health, I think they'd lump it all together, but it's, it's, it's there's different mental health. Um, medication helped medication. Um, talking to psychiatrists, um, the psychiatrist, more than anything, was learn how to cope with it when when a panic attack set on what to do, and that went on for years. This wasn't a few days; this was years.
2: Do you think? I mean, every every case is different, but fifteen years later, here we are. Mm-hmm. There, there's everybody's walk is different, but this this one just it seems like you more than others have to replay this over and over again for people like me or whoever's requesting mm-hmm. to to talk to you. Mm-hmm.
5: Yeah, I don't know. If the celebrity part of it would have changed what happened to me, Fair I, I think that would have happened yeah. regardless. The celebrity part of it made it a national story. I think if it had just been a local band that nobody had ever heard of, that would have been still been big news in Columbus, but I don't know if it would have left the city or maybe even the state. Um, but because of the, the, the celebrity status of it, it went nationwide. It actually went worldwide the next day. Um, You know, I heard later on that people in other countries and things were getting, you know, breaking news just hours later. So that made it more world known. Yeah, because I was told by other people that outside the Arosa the next morning, you had uh, media trucks lined up down Sinclair Road from every national news station you can imagine, you know, in the U.S. and foreign. So
2: Suicides account for many more police officer deaths annually than any other form of, uh, of line of duty death. Mm hmm. What needs to be done? How, how can we help? I' you know when you, when you hear when you hear that, that's, that,''s that's staggering. and I think for especially during the the Red, white and Q fund and what we're trying to accomplish and what we're trying to bring attention to, it just that's staggering, James.
5: Yeah, and I've seen some news stories lately about uh, first responders and, and suicides, not just law enforcement but firefighters, medics, et cetera. Um, first responders, rather be police, fire, et cetera have a there's a there's a stigma amongst first responders that uh, a machoism and that's the first problem um so people are looked upon as weak if they ask for help um and and that's the truth um not in everywhere obviously that's not 100 percent true but but it is certainly true um whether people want to hear it or not so the first problem is 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 we have to get rid of the stigma that asking for help is a weakness. It's not, it's really not. Um, And that's where it starts. How many of these people could have been saved if they would have asked for help, you know? Um, Or if somebody recognizes somebody that looks like they need help, um, are they willing to admit they need help because of that stigma? Um, That's where it starts. Um, And then the second thing would be, to me would be, Um, you know, is, is, is people getting them the help? Um, you know, when you, when you think about more first responders die by suicide than in the line of duty, um, it's, it's pretty overwhelming that 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 many people that just goes to show everybody out there how many people are going through mental that, health issues. That speaks for itself. That speaks I mean, for itself. I mean, there's
2: really, there's nothing else that needs to be said there's after, nothing. after that. that there's, and that there's statement's fact.
5: To... That's not made up. That is fact. The difference is you may see, Archie, you may see a bad car wreck, or you may see somebody get beat up or whatever, and it sticks with you. But we see that every day. Every single day of our shift. Every day. And it takes a toll It really does. I mean, imagine to the listeners out there, imagine the worst thing you've ever seen in your life. Imagine seeing that on an almost everyday basis. And then how would you handle that mentally? Um, Some people can shake it off and some people can't, Um, but we're all human. We all have empathy. We all have sympathy Um, just because we're behind a badge doesn't mean we don't feel things. Um, And I think, That's the stigma we need to get rid of is that that law enforcement and firefighters and medics and everybody else, they're real people too. You know, you have to put up this armor or this shield in front of the public. But when the public's not around, you break down too. You know, you have to see this every day and it's depressing and people say, yeah, but that's the job you chose to. Well, it is the job you chose, but it still doesn't mean you don't have feelings, you know. What can our listeners do for you and, and other people? who suffer from PTSD? How can we help? I mean, as far as just the average everyday citizen out there, I'd say what goes a long way, um, it did to me and and a lot of people, is if you see us on the street, just say thanks for what you do. That goes a long way, you know, because the only time that most people ever see a police officer is in the worst day of their life. (laughs) When They're in trouble. Most people don't want to see the police. Um, But, you know, just say, you know, thanks for being here or thanks for for stopping that or thank you know thanks goes a long way because at least like you know you know somebody's at least thanking me for this job because it's a tough job very thankless job but as far as the the PTSD and the mental health stuff goes I mean obviously the average person isn't going to be able to do much about that other than maybe contribute to some of these organizations so that they can help um obviously you know donating to some of these Uh, mental health, PTSD organizations that are out there trying to help first responders. You know, obviously the more uh, money they have coming in is the more that they can put out and and help. Um, But uh, yeah, saying thanks goes a long way.
0: If you or someone else you know is suffering from PTSD, please reach out to Mental Health America. Their 1-800 number is 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255.
1: Subscribe to Vinyl Analysis and listen to our archive episodes on your favorite podcasting app or at qfm96.com. You can also find companion pictures and videos to this special podcast series on our Instagram account and Facebook. And finally, you can listen to our carefully handcrafted companion playlist on Spotify. Search for Archie Vinyl Analysis, where you'll find a playlist of all the songs that we talk about in this podcast series. For Arch Madness, I'm Greg Hansberry. Thank you for listening.